0: This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK, who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Endo 101 a mini-series that seeks to inform and educate on the enigma that is endometriosis. My purpose on this mini-series is to talk about all the aspects of endometriosis right from proper definition to treatment methods and even the myths that are pandered about the disease. I am so privileged to be joined today by Mr Thomas Bainton, the endometriosis fellow and a Senior Registrar in Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, UK. Last episode, we discussed the path from symptoms to diagnosis and really went into the different hormonal treatment options for endometriosis. Today we will be talking about surgical treatments for endometriosis and why the gold standard treatment for endometriosis is excision surgery to remove the disease completely. It's also important for you to understand that there are many factors that can require your doctors to offer various other treatments other than surgery. This could depend on your situation, for example, the desire to have children, which means your fertility has to be treated as priority, the location of the disease, e.g. if it is deep infiltrating bowel disease that could be complex and potentially require a colostomy bag, and so on. One thing that is very important is to understand all your options and why your doctor thinks a particular approach is the best one for you. So join us again on this episode as Tom breaks it all down for us. Welcome back, Tom.
1: Thank you, Tenny. Lovely to be here again.
0: (laughs) Good to see you again. So let's just jump right in. Last week, last week's episode, we ended up talking all about hormonal treatment of endometriosis, even though the initial plan was to talk about, you know, <laughs> hormonal and surgical, but there was just so much to say.
1: As you um, know, we can talk about this for hours.
0: Yes, exactly. But it was really, really good because, you know, it helped to have a great, better understanding of the various hormonal treatments and how they actually work. So that was really good. And I'm excited to actually dive into surgical treatments today. So let us begin. Excellent. (laughs) So like I said, we spoke about hormonal treatments and there was something you said that struck me. You said that most of the treatments should usually be maybe prior to surgery or in addition to surgery. So can you explain why we might need these treatments alongside, say, maybe before or after surgery? Before we start talking about surgery, why is it important to, that we might need hormonal treatments alongside surgery?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I won't go into detail again about how all the hormonal treatments work, because we did discuss that last time. But uh, essentially, the, there's two broad reasons. Number one, hormonal treatments can help control symptoms. So if you're having debilitating periods every month, you're taking days off work or school and your social life's being interrupted by it, then hormonal treatments, actually, if they're not giving you a menstrual period and they're helping with all the pain, that would definitely be a good thing to take. Number two, particularly if you're using something like the combined oral contraceptive pill back to back, so without a break, or you're taking a high dose progesterone on something like Provera, or indeed we're using the GNRH analogs, most commonly in the UK, certainly by injection form. The hope is to try and stabilize the endometriosis and and shrink it down to an extent. It's not going to disappear. And, And I think I was clear about that last time, that hormonal treatment, although can treat symptoms and it can treat you having interruptions with your life because of endometriosis, and in some people, they might find actually on the pill back to back, for example, or any other treatments, they have no symptoms at all, which is great, but the endometriosis is still there. So the hope is using those sorts of slightly more aggressive hormonal treatments leading up to surgery, it stabilizes things. And then at the time of the operation, when it comes, the endometriosis is simply not quite as angry. It's not quite as inflamed. It's more inactive. And that enables us The hope is at least to more effectively be able to inspect things, more effectively be able to find those those surgical planes around the area that we're hoping to remove and to reduce the risk of complications at the time, such as bleeding or damaged areas around where we're operating, which are essentially the, the main things we want to avoid in surgery. And So hormonal treatments leading up to surgery is not going to make the endometriosis go away, but it will hopefully help control the symptoms, allow you to get on with life for a period of time. Inevitably, and we all know this now with COVID more than ever, there is a wait time for surgery. So even if I saw someone in clinic today, we're looking at having three to six months lead in and and under normal circumstances and during COVID, it it, it sadly can be even longer than that. That time is, is to an extent useful, and it might be that even if we could operate the next day, having a couple of months, three months usually of the pill back to back or a GNRH injection actually stabilizes things and makes things easier for surgery in the long run.
0: Okay. So now let's talk surgery. When it comes to surgical treatment, what many of us in the community or endometriosis patients mm. know is that ablation is bad and excision is good so let's talk about what exactly these surgical treatment methods are and why is it said that excision is the gold standard of treatment
1: yeah so um ablation is essentially vaporizing or burning the patches of endometriosis that you can see such that they're not there anymore or they they are quotes unquote sort of dead you've burnt them off or or or, or buzzed them with something like a laser and we do this i think we talked about it before in previous episodes either with diathermy which is a form of electricity we can use on a surgical instrument to heat up the tissues essentially cauterizing them and uh, and charring them and and to an extent vaporizing them they turn into smoke which is then moved out by our machines from inside the tummy or using a laser and there are lots of different forms of laser carbon dioxide laser is the one we use at chelsea and again that's going to vaporize the the tissue so ablation to an extent does remove endometriosis excision is where rather than trying to buzz it, vaporize it, remove it from the surface, you're doing a margin all the way around the area and you're removing the whole piece of tissue. The reason why I think you would have to be slightly cautious with ablation, which definitely has its place in some circumstances, but the worry is that you're really only getting the tip of the iceberg. And if you see a patch of endometriosis on the peritoneum, for example, and you happily buzz away the surface and it all shrivels up and you see smoke come away and you say, I'm confident I've removed that bit of endometriosis. The worry is that that really was just the surface and deep down going into the peritoneum, there'd be a much larger deposit, which sadly has the possibility of coming back, either not changing the symptoms at all to start with, or indeed over a period of months returning, growing back and and becoming a, a deposit again, which is why excision is certainly what we would aim to do in the vast majority of circumstances. We're going to be able to lift that tissue up from the structures that are around it, carefully dissect underneath it, all around it, removing it from the things it's attached to and take it away. And then, you know, we talked about endometriosis a bit like in the context of cancer, I think, before, the way it can invade into things and spread around and grow. It, it, it's not cancer in the literal sense, but but it's useful to think about it in that context. And if you've removed the whole area and you've got a margin of normal-looking tissue around the outside, then you can be confident that you've removed all the endometriosis. And at least in that place, it's unlikely to recur. Having said that, ablate, like excision, rather, does potentially have a little bit more risk, certainly in endometriosis in particular um, places. You know, we are going to try and remove tissue around the endometriosis. We're gonna try and and excise it from what it's invading. And of course, as I alluded to a second ago, the major risk with surgery is, is collateral damage. It's damaging things that are normal that we don't want to damage. Sometimes we have to, and we do that intentionally. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more related to the bowel particularly. But if there's a little patch of endometriosis on the surface of an ovary, for example, it might go down a little bit deeper in the ovary, but we don't necessarily, and with fertility in mind, want to start removing bits of ovary if we don't have to. So in that case, a very careful ablation approach where we start on the surface, we go down, we can wash it, we can take away the charred areas and we can see just how deep that area of endometriosis goes. It certainly has its place. But when we're talking about peritoneal endometriosis, definitely you're absolutely right. Excision would be the gold standard. Reason being um, that it has the best results in, in improving pain symptoms and it again has a slightly lower risk of recurrence.
0: You literally answered what my next question was going to be. (laughs) I was going to ask if the surgical approach for the different, I say, kinds of endometriosis, going from what we spoke about before that we've got peritoneal endometriomas and then deep infiltrating endometriosis. So you've kind of answered it in a way, but I guess it was just going to be is apart from the fact that we can... We probably don't want to do excision on ovaries we want to carefully ablate it like you just said are there any other differences in the approach when it comes to how you would treat uh, surgically treat endometriosis for the different
1: yeah. kinds of um it certainly would be very different approaches and actually what i was referring to earlier was a patch of endometriosis on the surface of an ovary so right. there is there can be endometriosis just living on 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 the outside of the ovary that you can see that we might well choose to ablate but actually an endometrioma is that larger endometriotic cyst. Right. It could well start with a little patch on the surface of the ovary or probably slightly deeper down. And then that fills up with that chocolate fluid and grows over time. And the treatment for an endometrioma, an endometriotic cyst, is excision. So we would try and drain it first of all. They always need opening up it's incredibly tricky to remove a, a, an intact endometriotic cyst and actually opening it up allows you to really explore the extent of it. And then we remove the um, what we call a capsule of the cyst. So the cyst has an area around it that's holding all that endometriotic tissue in and it has endometriosis in it itself. And by removing that whole capsule, we are hopefully, again, reducing the chance of it recurring significantly. So it's just the little patches on the surface of the ovary that we would we, maybe try and ablate. And even then excision is still... In some circumstances, a, a better option. So, endometrioma absolutely must excise. If we're simply draining an endometrioma, making a hole in it, sucking out all the chocolate tissue and, uh, and reducing the size of it, we might well transiently improve symptoms, particularly pain during intercourse and things like that, if the ovary isn't as bulky. But actually, we know with a very reasonable degree of certainty that that's going to slowly refill over time. And before we know it, in a matter of months, there will be an endometrioma again, in which case we've, we've put someone through considerable risk of, of surgery, through recovery of having a laparoscopy, through trips to hospital, general anaesthetic. And actually we've only got a very transient benefit. So the idea would be try and excise as much as we can for endometriomas. Peritoneal disease, again, excision is, is what we're aiming for. The peritoneum lines the whole of the tummy and all of the, 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 the abdominal structures. In the vast majority of places where the peritoneum is, there's actually not too much around it of any great importance. So we can carefully remove it and remove some of those quite substantial pieces of peritoneum with endometriosis in it, confident that we're unlikely to damage other things. And additionally, that peritoneum grows incredibly quickly. Within a matter of days to weeks, the peritoneum will have recovered that area we've removed with normal peritoneal tissue. Oh, wow. Where it gets a little bit trickier is where the peritoneum is overlying something of importance below it. And the major structures that can be nearby are something called the ureter. And that's the tube that goes from the kidney to the bladder. The kidneys actually live sort of at the bottom of your rib cage around the back, sort of where your ribs finish up. If you felt around your back, your kidneys are slightly deep there. They live behind the peritoneum and they have a tube that comes down a long through the pelvis on either side, underneath where the ovaries go, and then insert into the bladder around the back. The bladder lives in front of the womb. Endometriosis does have a habit of being right over the ureter and sometimes even invading into the ureter. If it's a peritoneal deposit that isn't invasive, then we can lift it up away. We can carefully see where the ureter is and divide the two separately, again, aiming to excise. If it is deeper, and this applies to all areas of deep infiltrating endometriosis, there is a much higher possibility of either needing to remove structures that it's invaded into in the process of excising it, or indeed inadvertent damage to the areas that we were operating nearby. And there are various strategies we can have to try and reduce that risk as much as possible, one of which is taking the hormonal treatments beforehand to try and inactivate things and indeed identifying the damage and repairing things, mitigating the risk and ensuring that people don't have ongoing symptoms as a result.
0: Okay. So I, I love that you mentioned some of those risks and I think that's kind of where I would like to wonder what some of the questions I also want to ask is yeah. about the risks with um, these surgeries. So for well, I don't know if there are different risks or varying degrees of risks for the different uh, kinds of endometriosis. I say kinds, so those three that we always talk about. But mm. what are the risks? So when um, doctors are a bit hesitant and they're saying, you know, sometimes even diagnosing endometriosis is risky, especially mm. for young people, even though we have to do it, but there are these risks that need to be addressed or at least uh, made mention of. So what are these risks of the disease that, um, of, i um, sorry, what are the risks of surgery that we need to always bear in mind or always remember. And then after that, we can talk about a bit more about the risks of bowel endometriosis, which I think I'm quite interested in. Absolutely. So I think that
1: the risks all really depend on on the individual and it's going to be very different for different people having different operation. One thing, you know, I commonly say to people with with any surgery, you usually feel a bit worse before you feel better because of course it is an interventional procedure. There's going to be scars on the tummy all we're talking about at this stage is, is laparoscopy. So this is keyhole surgery, camera usually in through the tummy button, and then two or three little incisions usually lower down between the tummy button and the pelvis and, and the hip bones. They're often about half a centimeter in size. Starting with someone who's who's uh, approaching a diagnostic laparoscopy, they've probably had some investigation beforehand. They've had an ultrasound scan most likely, they would have been examined, they would have had someone ask them in detail about their symptoms. They may or may not have an MRI depending on those findings. And let's say the suspect is that there might be some peritoneal endometriosis. So we haven't found the evidence that's that's indicating deep infiltrating disease. We haven't found the evidence on those scans that there's an endometriotic cyst, but there could well, as you know, even if investigations are normal, be some peritoneal deposits somewhere, which you can only see on laparoscopy. So in someone like that, the risk is very, very low. And the surgery for a diagnostic laparoscopy, the headline is it's a very safe procedure. But having said that, There are occasionally complications, most significant which are damage to areas around where we're operating importantly, things like the bowel and major blood vessels. And this can happen even in the absence of endometriosis involving the bowel itself, even when we weren't necessarily attempting to operate on the bowel. There can be a risk of damage when we're putting the telescope in through the tummy, um, because the bowel can sometimes live very close to the the, the tummy button. Risk is a little bit higher in people who have had previous operation, people who are likely to have scar tissue inside the tummy, so have had previous infections in the pelvis, perhaps ruptured appendixes, for example. Operations could be things like cesareans as well, and actually, with a cesarean, there can sometimes be some scar tissue there. The risk is is low. We're looking about one in a thousand of something like a bowel injury in, in diagnostic laparoscopy. But of course, that's one in a thousand for a department, for a surgeon like me. That's something on the you know our, our risk sheets that we can look at and learn from. But for that one patient, that's hundred percent. That's that's you having a diagnostic laparoscopy that day and actually coming out potentially a little bit worse off. Certainly if that laparoscopy then needed to turn into uh, having a bigger scar in the tummy to help repair any bowel injury, that's called a laparotomy. And certainly if it involved any infections after the operation or blood transfusions and things which which also have have risk involved and are certainly disruptive to your life. But that sort of laparoscopy, diagnostic and, and excision of, of, of what we're suspecting is peritoneal disease is on the whole, pretty safe. One of the other risks we didn't talk about, and this is higher with more extensive operations if you're getting to stay in hospital a little bit more, is blood clots in the legs and the lungs. It's something that's been a huge target of certainly the NHS and I think healthcare systems around the world as being preventable to an extent in terms of identifying risk factors for people having clots and reducing that as much as possible. Anyone who's been in hospital might remember the, the gorgeous surgical stockings they get to yep, wear. Um, creepy. Fun. You know them well, Tenny, I'm sure. <laughs> often a little bit uh, less convenient in the summer when it's particularly hot and warm, um, but they do really a good job of, of reducing the chance of, of blood clots forming in the, in the lower limb where the blood can pool so the stockings push the blood back to the rest of the body. And depending on the circumstances, usually necessary if you've had a a bigger scar on the tummy, certainly, but also if you've had extensive surgery elsewhere or having prolonged stay in hospital to have the blood thinning injections afterwards, often for around a week, sometimes two, again, depending on circumstances. There are a few things you can do to try and help to to reduce those risks as much as possible. And again, this comes into having a bit of warning about when you're going to have surgery, whether it's three months, six months ahead in time. We know that risks are a little bit higher in various people. Some of them you can't change. You can't change the fact whether you've had previous surgery or not. But something like BMI, on average, higher BMI, just slightly higher risk of having surgical complications, whether it's bleeding, infection, blood clots particularly, or, or surgical damage. So a bit of weight loss before surgery is always useful. And additionally, there are small risks, but there are risks involved with having an anesthetic. And again, BMI helps with that. Smoking particularly helps reduce that risk of having difficulties during anesthesia and post-operative recovery, including infections on the lungs as well. So either reducing or, or, or stopping entirely is what your doctor would recommend for a whole host of reasons, but particularly around the time of surgery is, is definitely beneficial.
0: Okay.
1: When we're getting into more invasive surgery, the risks do change a little bit. And the, uh, the, the, the emphasis here is that it's going to be very different for each individual. If we're looking at doing more invasive surgery, either that's operating on an endometrioma or operating on deep infiltrating disease. And that could be deep infiltrating disease onto the bowel, usually the rectum, or it could be on the pelvic sidewalls going into the ureter or on the front in between the womb and the bladder, which could potentially involve that organ. You would usually have had some pre op investigations suggesting this most likely an MRI. And the MRI can then point us in a direction of whether we need to do other tests. If someone certainly has got bowel symptoms, including bleeding, they're likely to have had, to have had a, a, a sigmoidoscopy or a colonoscopy, which is often done with your wake under sedation. Sometimes we do it on the day of surgery, actually under general anaesthetic, but that would be something we would need to do as part of the procedure to see if there's any endometriosis um, going all the way through into the lining of the bowel. And these sorts of things change your risk. And again, if you've got endometriosis that's possibly involving the bladder having a look inside the bladder with a procedure called a cystoscopy which is a telescope in through the urethra, which is the tube between the bladder and the outside world. Again, usually what well, can be done under under sedation or or, or in the local, um, local anesthetic in an outpatient setting, or indeed is done under general anesthetic as part of the whole procedure, can give us a bit more information. So we'll have more information for you leading up to surgery which will tell us about those specific risks. The major risk of excising deep infiltrating disease is damage to the areas around it and actually the necessity to remove areas around it because the endometriosis has by definition infiltrated or invaded into that structure so if we're looking at endometriosis in the the rectum the MRI and and the endoscopy will tell us how far it is through if it's just approaching the edge of the rectum then we can try and 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 just shave it off the surface drop the rectum away but there is a possibility even with that in its simplest form of damage to it and again, this damage we test for at the time of the surgery, and if there is, we can usually put it together and fix everything straight away then and there, but there is a possibility it might not reveal itself for some time. It might not have been able to have been found um, at the time of the procedure. And actually then it manifests in someone not recovering as well as they should, maybe showing signs of infection, maybe having a, a collection in the, in, in, in the pelvis of infected uh, uh, tissue, sort of pus in the area or bleeding in the area, um, which could mean a, a return to the operating theater. Again, if we're operating on the pelvic sidewall around the ureter, any damage at the time, we can try and prepare for it beforehand by putting um, a tube through the ureter called a stent, which helps protect it and helps us identify it to reduce the risk of damage, but we might not see damage there at the time. It might be that there's very heavy bleeding around the site of the ureter at the time, which requires stitches to be put in to stop it or some coagulation of the, of the blood vessels. And that can occasionally cause collateral damage as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes over time, that, that burning of the tissues does affect the ureter. And then it might be that the um, uh, the woman suffers symptoms of, of pain or or, again, signs of infection in the days and weeks after the operation, and it's revealed to be after some scans and investigations that there was damage to the ureter. So those essentially are are, are the the risks really. Infection is one of them that's a risk with any surgery. If it's extensive surgery, we're expecting everyone gets antibiotics at the time to try and reduce that risk as much as possible. A post-operative infection can happen deep down in the pelvis or in the scars. Blood clots in the legs and the lungs, again, a little bit more likely depending on personal circumstances, including uh, BMI, uh, family history of having blood clots or having had one before. And again, extent of the surgery and length of hospital stay. Bleeding, the risk is more the more extensive the surgery is usually but can happen even in the smallest of procedures and then damage to areas around where we're operating which is is very specific depending on the circumstances of your individual procedure and might be a necessity and I think we'll talk about that in a second when we talk about operations for deep infiltrating endometriosis of purposefully removing the areas that it's invaders to, to to remove the endometriosis where we can
0: why don't you take a break grab a snack or go get hydrated and we will be back in 15 seconds Okay. That's actually my next question. Yeah. On a road today, just answering my questions. Or Sorry, Tony <laughs> Close to the questions, but that's fine. So the next question is actually about deep infiltrating um, endometriosis on the bowel, for example. Mm. A few people have mentioned using getting a colostomy bag as a result. So can you talk about what happens or what kind of surgery causes or requires having a colostomy bag? And is it something that is permanent or is it something that is usually a temporary measure?
1: Hmm, absolutely. So I think first of all, let's just talk about all the possible treatments for deep infiltrating endometriosis. Colostomy bags are are, are only rarely need to be used. You'll be pleased to hear. And almost universally are, are a temporary measure. So deep infiltrating endometriosis involving the bowel, most commonly the rectum, sometimes the sigmoid, which is that bit of bowel just above the rectum. So it's the the bit of bowel the stool gets to before it comes to the rectum and is evacuated. It all depends on how much there is and how deep through the bowel it is. I just discussed that if it's on the or up to the surface of the bowel, we would attempt to do something called a rectal shave, where we're very carefully just separating the area of endometriosis from the bowel wall itself. The bowel drops away and then we can remove the nodule or we drop the nodule off the back of the vagina or cervix and then remove the nodule from the bowel afterwards. In those circumstances, it sometimes is necessary to put a few stitches in just to help repair that bowel wall where there might have been a, a small defect, but we wouldn't expect to make any holes in the bowel itself, any, any full thickness holes or resection. The, the good thing about doing a shave is there's a lower chance of, of, of a leak from the bowel afterwards because we're not intending to make any hole in it. So that is that's primarily what we would try and do. If you don't need to have any bowel removed and we can remove all the endometriosis happily without doing so, then that is what you would want. If there is a slightly more extensive to positive endometriosis, and this nodule is actually involving the wall of the bowel or it's very large, or it's, it's, it's not possible to do a rectal shave, we've got two options. And this depends really on how large the nodule is and where it is exactly. The first one we call a disc resection. Uh, This is making a a sort of circular shaped incision around the area of endometriosis on on the wall of the bowel. The bowel is a tube, as you know, and removing it with margins of normal tissue, just like we would excise a bit of endometriosis from the peritoneum. So we're excising around it, removing that nodule, and then repairing that bowel up again straight away using stitches. Again, the hope is all of this can be done through keyhole surgery, although the more operation you're doing on the bowel slightly higher risk of needing to do larger incisions, called a laparotomy. With the disc resection, we would hopefully again remove all the endometriosis, just slightly higher risk of a few things like, you know, made a larger hole in the bowel, theoretically a slightly higher risk of leakage from the bowel afterwards, causing infection or, or potentially another operation. The last form, and this is the most invasive form that we would do for endometriosis, is a full bowel resection. And this is if there's a very large nodule there, or the nodules invading all the way through the, 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 the bowel wall into the inside of the bowel, or it's in a particular area that we can't do a disc resection on, for example, we resect a whole segment of the bowel. So the bowel is a tube, we'd take a segment above and below the patch of endometriosis, so we've removed all the area where the nodule is, where the disease is, and, and remove that. There are two options once you've done that. And by far and away, the most common option and what we would aim to do in most people is rejoin those two cut ends about. That's called an anastomosis. And we rejoin those ends into the pelvis, they come back together again, and the, the feces will be able to freely pass through. There are, however, small risks of doing that. Most significantly, a subsequent leak from the area where those, those um, two ends have been rejoined, or much more rarely, something we call a fistula. Um, We'll talk about that a bit more in a second. It's where potentially there's a connection between the bowel and, for example, the wall of the vagina, such that faeces is able to leak from the bowel from the vagina. And as you can imagine, that would give someone very unpleasant symptoms afterwards. Mm -hmm. If by rejoining those two ends of bowel, we say, actually, look, there's a really high risk of having a leak from this afterwards. And having a leak from a bowel, as you can imagine, there's, there's infected um, contents, feces, lots of bacteria leaking inside the abdomen can potentially make you really unwell and definitely needs another operation to sort out. Or indeed having something like a fistula where you're potentially leaking feces vaginally afterwards can, again, it give you very unpleasant symptoms and involve extensive surgery to sort out. What we need to do is give the bowel a rest to be able to heal before we can rejoin those ends. Most commonly, this is because the nodule, the area of endometriosis we've had to remove is quite low down. It's quite low down in the rectum towards the anal area. Therefore, the blood supply isn't quite as optimal to allow healing to be as good as it could be. So if that's the case, we would take that loose end of bowel that we've removed that's attached to the sigmoid and where the feces is coming down, and we would divert it through the front of the tummy wall and form a colostomy. That's a, a stoma or colostomy is how people would know it. The other end of bowel is closed off. So that is the end that's then going down towards the, the, the edge of the rectum and the anus. You might still produce a little bit of mucus in that area. People might still pass some sort of mucusy tissue when they, they go to the lavatory. But the feces is diverted coming out the front of the tummy. And this is usually the case for around three months. And it gives a chance for all that bowel to, to heal, to get a good blood supply. So then in three months time, you can rejoin those two ends confident that the risk of having a leakage there or a fistula there is far, far lower than if you've done that at the initial phase. Um, so it's, it's always to try and reduce the risk of having significant, uh, adverse effects or causing significant problems down the line. And if you did have a leak from the bowel after an anastomosis was made, the treatment again, pretty much universally would be forming that stoma to allow that, that, that area that had become, um, infected and leaking to heal um, so that it could at again a point down the line be rejoined again similarly if you'd had a fistula um, you may well need to divert the feces away from the area with a stoma and repair those layers and and allow things to heal nicely Mm -hmm. the risk of having um, a a stoma is really low Um, I think giving a number on it wouldn't be too accurate really because it all depends individually if you're having a diagnostic laparoscopy and and they see peritoneal endometriosis and they excise that your risk of having a stoma is zero there is an incredibly low chance of causing any damage to the bowel the most common side of bowel injury in that case would be when you know we're putting the telescope in and things which is well away from the rectum and usually we can repair those things straight away it's not you know (laughs) it's negligible i should say rather than zero Um, if you have got deep infiltrating endometriosis, you might have had an MRI, you've had a, a flexible sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy, has found this area going all the way through the the, the bowel wall. It's, you know, five, six centimetre nodule. It's a really big nodule. Your chance of stoma is quite high. And this is something that would be discussed with you Well in advance, really extensively. Lots of preoperative planning leading up to that. You would have talks with the colorectal team. In all cases, if you're in a BSGE center, certainly we work together with colorectal colleagues and and they would see you in clinic. They would do the flexible synopsis. They'd be able to go through all those things I discussed in great detail on an individual basis with you. And discuss how would it affect your life. It's not just you know talking about numbers in books. It's how would it affect you? How would you be able to manage with the the potential of having a, colonosc- a, a colostomy? You would speak to our our nurses who look after the stoma's. They would show you what it would be like living with a bag. They'd show you where on the tummy it would be formed. And if we were thinking that was a likelihood, we'd actually put marks on the tummy where you'd selected that would be a good place for your bag to be for you to live with it. So we know about these things well ahead of time. The risk. Is universally very, very low. In the vast majority of cases with recto vaginal nodules, we're able to do an anastomosis. If there is a likelihood of needing a, colono- uh, a colostomy, it will be discussed extensively in advance and you'll be explained exactly what it would involve. And if it's, people would always be reticent. Would I want a colostomy? Absolutely not. But actually, Would you want to take that risk of having a leak having emergency surgery down the line having significant um, recovery as a result and having to end up with one anyway, or as we view it you know it's correct to take those appropriate decisions in advance but it's a very very personal decision that people are going to be making on this basis um people are going to be weighing up all those risks and benefits with surgery um but it's just testament to how severe symptoms of endometriosis can be but even that risk is 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 going to give people significant benefit from their really really debilitating
0: symptoms okay wow that's like the clearest explanation of uh the treatment of bile endometriosis and the colostomy bag for me that I ever had because I'm really um, terrified of it of um, you know having the excision done on the bowel and then having to have the colostomy back but actually now looking at it even if like you said the risks are low but if that happens it's actually a better choice than having the risk of um, infection or the leakage so I Hmm. think that's really great.
1: So the risks are overall very low looking at everyone and I think in some people we discuss in our in our, our meetings together we it's us the the gynecologists and, and the gynecological surgeons talking together with the radiologists who are able to look at all the MRI pictures in detail the colorectal surgeons who might tell us about results that they found on the sigmoidoscopies or how they're interpreting those those images in some people the risk is high and we would normally know about that beforehand we'd talk to people beforehand and we'd say look the overwhelming likelihood is here that we will need to do a stoma how do you feel about that how do you Think you can live with that? Let's let's speak to the stoma nurses. Let's see what's need to be done.
0: Okay, amazing. So let's talk about what people should, what patients should expect uh, prior to surgery, on surgery day, and then after surgery.
1: Yeah, so on surgery day itself, it's usually a case of, of not having had any breakfast that morning. The anesthetist would, and we indeed would want you to uh, be nil by mouth as we call it, so an empty stomach, that's to reduce the chance of having any, any difficulties with controlling the airway when a tube is put down to help you breathe at the time of anaesthetic. Prior to the the coming in, particularly if we're operating on bowel endometriosis and we're looking at the possibility of even doing a shave or, or, or disc resection, you'd usually have had some laxatives. Anyone who's listening to this, who's experienced this will know it can be quite an unpleasant experience. But universally, we want the bowel to be empty. We want it to be nice and clean if we're expecting to need to do any operation there. And and that might have been in the days beforehand. Again, if you've seen the stoma nurses and we're thinking about the possibility of giving a bag, you might well have had marks put on the tummy that'll show exactly where that stoma would be if we needed to do that. In the morning of surgery, you'll have some observations done by the nurses who'll check you in. They will usually give you those gorgeous stockings that we talked about, dressing up in the glamorous hospital gowns and things. And the surgeons will come and see everyone first thing. We're normally in at around 8am, um, depending on lists. Sometimes lists are earlier, sometimes it's an afternoon list and you're having a uh, what we would expect to be a day case procedure, which is you're in and out in the same day, it might be that you're coming in in the late morning for an afternoon list. In any event beforehand, the surgeon will come and speak to you, they'll go through things again. We've usually fully discussed things in clinic beforehand and it's just a case of saying hello, going through things again, defining any sort of finer detail and making sure everything's absolutely prepared. Sometimes, and as we're finding now, particularly with COVID, with our virtual clinics being more prevalent, we might need to go through the, the formal consent process on the day of surgery. We would always had a chat about it beforehand, but it's going through in a little bit more detail, you know, what are the individual risks for you? What are the risks of having infection, blood clots, that kind of stuff, just to make sure everyone's fully aware of, of the risks before they approach the, the surgery itself. They might ask questions about whether you'd be wishing to have things like a blood transfusion. And certainly if anyone listening to this wouldn't for religious reasons or otherwise want to have a blood transfusion, it's definitely something to make your surgeon aware of early on in the process. So we can do extra blood testing, try and optimize things like your hemoglobin level to reduce that risk of much as possible and make other plans to control blood loss during the operation we always control blood loss during operations <laughs> but, you know, as long as there are extra plans um, in case and if you don't have blood transfusions itself maybe there are other blood products we can use or or, or artificial blood products then it really depends when on the list your, your surgery will be there can be quite a bit of waiting around on the day of an operation and it's always sad but if you're having a big case usually we try and and get things going. Occasionally, there's a few other shorter cases on the list, which we might try and do first. Sometimes it's big cases first, really depending on on risk. And there's lots and lots of reasons why we might do things in different orders on the day, both specific for patients, things like latex allergies. If you've got an allergy to latex, we need the theatre to be really clean, make sure everything's um, removed of latex for that patient Then other patients might well go in after that. People have diabetes, for example, they might not want um, or we might not want them to be starved for quite as long a period of time. So they might try and do them first. So if you You are, you know, finding yourself at the end of an operating list. There's usually a rationale and a reason why, based on the sort of medical specifics of other people on that list. So, 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 try not to be too upset, although it can be quite frustrating. And then you would, you would also see the anesthetist that morning again, just go through the fine details. The anesthetist is someone who you might not have met before. They'll ask you questions about your general health. They will usually ask you to open your mouth and have a little look and, and see how your airway is. Um, with endometriosis, most of our patients are are, are young fit and well otherwise, and, and it shouldn't be too much of a, a, a risk in terms of anesthesia, although sometimes with long-term medical conditions, it can become an issue. You go through to the anesthetic room, you'll see the anesthetic team, the anaesthetists themselves, they pop a little drip in, often in the back of the hand, and then they would pop you off to sleep. Anyone who's had an anesthetic might remember it's an injection in the back of the hand, usually oxygen to breathe throughout the whole process. And then you wouldn't remember too much after that. You'd be going through into the operating room, we'd, we'd do our procedure, and then afterwards into the recovery area. Most people's first memory is sort of coming around in recovery, feeling a little bit groggy, sometimes a little bit of pain, sometimes feeling a bit nauseous. We know that gynecological procedures are a bit more likely to make you nauseous than some other operation. We know that ahead of time. The anaesthetists usually manage that in, in, in the surgery and giving you lots of anti sickness medications. Some of the pain relief used also makes you quite nauseous as well. So it's a bit of a balance occasion. But in recovery, you'd expect to have more pain relief, have some anti sickness medications to keep a close eye on your observations and things for a few hours. And then if all is well, get you back down to the ward, um, which is usually where you started the journey where you entered in the morning. Sometimes you entered in a different area. As surgeons, we would try and see people in the recovery afterwards. Obviously, if the operation was done, in the beginning of the list or in the middle of this and we're back operating on subsequent patients you might not be able to do that in which case we come and see everyone in the in the ward at the end of the day and go through things sometimes believe it or not we do see people in recovery and actually you seem wide awake at the time really alert and we're chatting about things and you have no recollection at all of that of that conversation so we always try and make sure to come and see you afterwards in the ward or talk about things in the subsequent days just to go through things in detail because the the sort of the groggy effects of anesthesia can last for some time afterwards.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> what was it? What else was the question we talked about? Was it any tips about preparing? Was it? Tenny yeah. or?
0: Yes. Do you have any tips as well to prepare for surgery?
1: Yeah. You know, I think I uh, discussed earlier about trying to reduce or stopping smoking really helps from a from a, an aesthetic and, and medical point of view. Any weight loss is always a good idea. If you're overweight, if you're a normal weight, normal BMI, then don't worry about that at all. at all. I try and prepare things at home more than anything else it's about preparing other people around you for the for the fact that there is going to be a bit of a recovery afterwards and to make sure you've got some extra help and support make sure work know exactly what you're going in for even if it's a day case procedure we're looking at being in and out the next day we're going to have you know some recovery afterwards and, and you need to prepare for that and I would be very kind to yourself make sure that you take some some time off really just get rid of all the other stresses in your life um, make sure that other things that you've been meaning to do are either you know make people aware that you might not be able to deal with this for some time or you've dealt with things before the operation so you've really got it just it's just a clear calendar to, to worry about yourself and not worrying about other things Going on, it can be quite a long wait, as I discussed. There's lots of waiting around in hospital, so bring an iPad, bring some books, whatever you need to do. And some headphones is a good idea. It's fairly noisy in hospital. There's all sorts of buzzers, people chatting. Um, so headphones, you've got some noise-cancelling headphones, even better, is a good idea to kind of just zone out, listen to music or whatever you'd like. The laxatives, absolutely, we discussed being nil by mouth, so not taking any medication uh, necessarily that morning if you're on long-term things. But if it's something that the anaesthetist has told you to continue with, then then I would take it. But no breakfast certainly.
0: Okay and I know you said that everyone's different but what would you say is the recovery period after surgery and when can people go back to normal activities?
1: Hmm. So if we're looking at a, the, the, a straightforward diagnostic procedure and treatment of peritoneal endometriosis or, or an, an ovarian endometrioma for example, um, we would aim to be, get people out the same day. So you'd have your surgery in the morning, recovery through the afternoon and then home late afternoon early evening if everything's fine. You know, we always say prepare for the possibility of a night stay in hospital. So bring your toothbrush. Um, but there is a possibility or, or that you might just stay in. But the likelihood is we'd aim to get home. But there's still a bit more recovery afterwards. And we're talking about a couple of weeks. The joy of doing things through keyhole surgery is you bounce back. Well, the the, the biggest thing to recover from after operations mostly is, is the scar in the tummy, which causes pain that causes immobility and that increases the risk of infection and blood clots and that kind of thing. But through keyhole surgery, we expect people to be up and about there. You know, we do the surgery in the morning. You'd be walking again in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. We don't want to use catheters and things like that in the bladder unless we need to, because actually getting up and about using the bladder normally would, would, would definitely be a good thing. But you're going to be taking it easy. We want you to be up and about lying in bed staying prolonged periods of time still increases the risks of all of those above things we discussed but it's being at home it's pottering around it's from bed to chair to walking as you can it's not having any uh, a great sort of tasks and things to do it's taking things very easy with some extra help probably after a few days you'd be back to normal activities at home but it sometimes is two steps forward, one step back, and you have a busy day, you're good, you're up and about, and then the next day you feel like, actually, oh goodness, you know what, I paid for that. But just taking it easy, staying regular on the pain medications, don't be brave. We know it's gonna be uncomfortable, so, so take the pain relief. Paracetamol and ibuprofen is a really good combination in the vast majority of people. Occasionally, people are sensitive to ibuprofen, but on the whole, it's it works great. Paracetamol is pretty much universally very safe. Some people think, oh God, the pain's so bad, why am I even bothering with paracetamol? But actually, it does reduce the amount of extra things you need. So even if paracetamol isn't gonna take away the pain itself, which we accept a lot of the time it's not, it reduces the amount of extra things. So ibuprofen paracetamol on top of that, Things like codeine and dihydrocodeine are quite commonly prescribed medications for post-operative pain relief. They're good. They're good painkillers. They do have some side effects that anyone who's listening might have experienced. They can cause occasional drowsiness, sometimes nausea. And one of the big ones, particularly if you're taking it for prolonged periods of time, is constipation. Particularly if you've had operations near or around the bowel, particularly if we know that endo can cause all sorts of upsets to the GI system, constipation is not what you want. So eat lots of fruit and veg and fiber. Some laxatives, which are available over the counter, would definitely be a good idea to try and mitigate that risk and holding the codeine for as and when you need it so paracetamol ibuprofen regularly codeine dihydrocodeine as and when you need it maybe in the evenings when actually being a little bit withdrawn and drowsy isn't, isn't necessarily the end of the world more extensive surgery it's going to be quite different and you can expect to definitely stay the night if we're looking at deep infiltrating disease operation the vast majority of cases are still home the next day Okay. Even if we're looking at doing rectal shave and disc resection, it can be home the next day. If we have done more invasive surgery and we've done a, a full resection of the bowel or a stoma, then it's, it's probably one or two nights, sometimes a little longer. Um, there is a risk, as I discussed with any keyhole surgery, of needing to do a larger scar. a larger scar had to be made because of worries about surgical bleeding or damage to areas, or it was just technically needed to be done to complete the procedure, then you would spend quite longer in hospital, slightly longer. And again, it would be a little bit more progressive recovery at home. So perhaps a bit more time spent in bed, looking at four weeks to six weeks before you're you're sort of back to normal. Mm. There's a few things you might want to do differently in recovery. Certainly, if there was endometriosis that was going through and invading the top of the vagina, which is another common site it can be, and it required a little bit of vagina to be excised, we would want you to avoid sexual intercourse for a good month um, to allow things to heal. Similarly, if a hysterectomy is done at the time of the procedure, then again, avoiding sexual intercourse to allow the top of the vagina to heal afterwards for, for around about a month to six weeks is definitely what we'd recommend. Other sorts of sexual activity, you know. Um, it, it can be appropriate so there's, there's things that, could, that can be done but but penetrative intercourse definitely um might need a bit of a break
0: amazing so my final question for today so a lot of the times many patients come out of surgery and like you rightly said earlier you might have a whole conversation but you're so groggy and you don't remember mm. um, when you wake up and uh, we usually have our post-surgical Appointment like sometimes two months later. Yeah. And if you don't remember what you asked or what the doctor said to you, or you don't have that conversation, then it gets really worrying and you really don't know what happened uh, during surgery. So, do you think that there are any questions, or I don't know how we could speak to our doctors, or any specific things we can ask the surgeons? Be- maybe, I don't know, maybe before surgery. Or after, I don't know, that could help so that you have an, a bit of an idea of what happened during surgery, even if you Absolutely. don't have a full picture
1: yeah so yeah uh, university surgeons we 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 want to and we try to talk to people afterwards and and that's our aim we know that it's incredibly stressful not knowing what happened and actually outcomes are better when you know what's gone on and you know it's less likely that you're going to suffer at home because we've gone through things in detail or we can describe at least symptoms that you might expect to have so you're less likely to need to come in as an emergency afterwards because you might not know what to expect or you might know how to deal with things if we talk about possibilities so we would try and aim to speak to absolutely everyone sometimes For example, if it's a day case procedure, we are still operating in the afternoon on a a longer case, for example, it might be that you actually leave hospital and you're home before we've finished and have the opportunity to come and speak to you, which is a shame. I think if you want to definitely see us and we try and see everyone, then, you know, hang around. It might be that you're going to go to a discharge area. There's quite a high throughput in in surgical wards, in in gynecology wards as well. So the nurses might say, actually, no, we need to move you from this bed here, but you can wait in the discharge lounge we can come see you down there. If we're talking about it pre operatively so say, look, I would like to speak to you afterwards. I'm happy to wait. I'll hang around. And then, you know, we will definitely remember and, and, and come and see you afterwards and go through things. I think that's the best approach. We mm-hmm. would want to speak to you on the day when it's all fresh, when we know what's going on. We can show you pictures, which we've taken in the laparoscopy, and we can talk about things in, in specifics. You would usually also have some good information on the discharge paperwork. Everyone leaving hospital has discharge paperwork, which they get given. And also, and importantly, all this information goes to your GP. Who knows what's happened and we would ask the GP sometimes to to do things post-operatively, whether we need some routine blood tests, whether we'd like a review, whether we'd like extra medications prescribed or adjusted. There might be quite detailed uh, information on the discharge summary about the specifics of your procedure. It might be that the discharge summary is a little bit more generic depending on on the hospital style, but you are you know entitled and should know everything that's gone on. So if you'd like that more information, then again, tell the surgeon, look, I would like the, the full operation notes and things on the discharge summary, include it in the letters, send it to the GP, some of it can be quite technical and some of it can be you know confusing occasionally so it's a good idea to go through it and certainly not not get too scared about things you might be reading um, it's easy to misinterpret things it's sort of medical jargon if we are giving you full operation notes your GP would be a great point of contact they can usually interpret things quite happily uh, and go through things in detail with you another fantastic point of contact and something we have at all BSG centers in the UK is an endometriosis, uh, endometriosis nurse who are universally brilliant in my mind and they are often the contact between patients and us and and they will be able to access all your records they'll be able to go through things they'll be able to discuss things with you they'll have huge experience in what different surgery means for recovery afterwards when you've got questions and actually they're, they're they're so great and they can help avoid a lot of post-operative complications and emergency trips to the accident and emergency department just by being a point of contact someone to talk to and someone to go through things with um, but we totally appreciate it. it can be a really frustrating wait for that post-operative appointment so get in touch endometriosis specialist nurses usually and they can go through things with them or we can talk to you on the telephone from from us the doctors and and we would hope. To speak to everyone afterwards it's a shame when people you know get get missed off that and we, we totally understand
0: fantastic thank you so much this was another amazing episode talking about surgery and every single aspect of it so I really appreciate you coming on the show once again and breaking it down for every endometriosis patient out there so thank you so much
1: That's absolutely fine. No, my pleasure. There's there's plenty more detail um, to to be discussed. And I think the important thing to take away from this episode is that surgery and and what's involved, and particularly the risks involved, are so individual. So think about what is your endometriosis doing? Where is your endometriosis? What surgery are they planning on doing? Sometimes we don't do things all at once. It might be that actually your surgeon is going to do what we call a two-stage procedure. They might do a diagnostic procedure the first time, and actually, you know, we know that there's deep infiltrating disease, but you want to see where it is, what it's involving, and the idea of that to be able to go through in far more detail what the specifics are going to be for you. Um, it would be rash to, to, to press on and do more invasive surgery and uh, exposing you to the risk of having a bigger scar on the tummy or a colostomy bag without having gone through all of that in extensive detail first. And so it's not uncommon for us to do things that way. And a two stage procedure again, we might choose to operate on some endometriosis at the first time, purposefully leaving some for the second operation. You know, when operations are ticking over four, five, six hours and there's been uh, perhaps some blood loss already, you know, a longer procedure is is putting you at higher risk. So sometimes it's better to divide things up. And we'll be able to go through all of that in great detail. The vast majority of times we know about these things beforehand and we can talk about specific risks beforehand. Sometimes, and with endometriosis, as you well know, Tenny, and I'm sure a huge number of people (coughs) listening know, it catches us by surprise and it's a massive enigma and it's, it, it can be a case and we see our, in our centre in, in London, You know, we get tertiary referrals from district hostels where they were thinking they were going to do a diagnostic procedure and there was a small amount of endometriosis and actually it's not and it's a larger amount of endometriosis and what you don't want is, is things to be done there and then without the preparations being done beforehand. It's all about proper planning, seeing the right people, being an area where we can operate together with colorectal surgeons, with urologists if we need to, so they're urologists operating on the bladder and the, and the ureters and the kidneys, um, to, to be able to do things correctly.
0: Thank you. I think that is so important because my own personal story as well. I was uh, I had my operation, my diagnostic laparoscopy, and the, the doctor said that he just couldn't do anything because it was a frozen mm. pelvis. And it was so bad that he just decided to stitch me back up and yeah. send me And off you know what? That was
1: yeah. probably the right thing to do. What yeah. you wouldn't have wanted is him saying, oh, you know, I'll give it a go without yeah. all the preparations being there and yes it's more stressful yes it's another trip to hospital on another day and it is more risk having had more surgery but actually on balance definitely the right thing
0: yeah agreed all right then thank you so much tom i hope you have learned a lot from this episode today be sure to come back next week for the next episode where we talk about endometriosis and fertility what is the mechanism by which endometriosis causes infertility or subfertility and what is usually the treatment path for those seeking fertility if you have enjoyed this episode i would love to know tell me on instagram and facebook you can also follow the instagram page of chelsea center for minimal invasive gynecology at ccmig.london where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe to this podcast. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.